This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest in this episode is Carolyn Eichner, the author of The Paris Commune, A Brief History, and the book was published by Rutgers University Press in 2022. Welcome, Carolyn. Thank you, Roxanne. I think I've said this to you before, Carolyn, that your book has the coolest publication date of any book I can think of because it was... (laughs) It came, its official publication date is, uh, was March 18th. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. The beginning of the commune. How are you doing, Carolyn? I'm doing well, thank you. How's the pandemic been for you? Where have you been? I mean, maybe I shouldn't ask you where you've been because I know you're a traveler and that'll that'll take up all of her time. But <laughs> can you tell us where you're joining joining us from and how things have been for you the last couple of years? Um, well, I'm I'm at home in Milwaukee, and this is where I was for the the bulk of the pandemic, um, and I uh, spent a, a significant chunk of it uh, writing this book. I had a a fellowship, the um, Institute for Research in the Humanities at uh, University of mm-hmm. Wisconsin in Madison. And so I wasn't teaching in uh, 2020, 2020 to 2021. I had to be home. Um, and when Kristen Ross asked if I would like to write this book, um, even though I was finishing another book, I, I thought, you know, I can't do anything else. So I might as well just uh, take this amazing and fun opportunity. And, uh, yeah. and I did. And then, and then I worked night and day. I mean, I really worked night. Yeah. And day. I mean, I, I know I touched a little bit while you were working on it and it just sounded like an, a really intense process. And I'm going to want to come back to what it was like to be working on the commune. I mean, the writing and all of that, I'm sure was really challenging, but just to be specifically thinking about the commune and its politics and events and thematics and all of that during this period that we've been living through, I am real curious to know about what that, that kind of, what kinds of connections you were making and how you think that that might have influenced the way this, this book turned out, this wonderful book turned out that is, that is so beautiful to look at. I love the cover. Thank you. It's the, it's the flag of the commune. Yeah. Before I ask you about the book and your experience of the book, I just want to go back. You mentioned that Kristen Ross asked you to to participate in the series. So it's a new series, and this is the first book out in exactly. the series. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, and the series is called Reinventions of the Paris Commune. And um, yeah, so you know, my book is the first, and then Owen Holland's Literature and Revolution, British Responses to the Paris Commune, is the second one. And mm-hmm. yeah, so the idea is new, interesting, different approaches to the commune. And with a brief history, she noted that there really hadn't been a brief history written in English in, no, oh, probably about 50 years. 
And as someone who teaches the commune regularly, I am so grateful for this book. I taught a course in the spring of 2021 on the commune and the book you were writing it. At the time. <laughs> um, but next time I teach that class, I'm definitely going to be assigning this one. And I think a lot of people who are listening will will be interested in that as well because it's so accessible. It's brief, um, you know, and and it's it's so recent, right, compared to some of the things that are available for, for all of us who who read about and think about and teach the the commune. I, I always ask people, Carolyn, like, why France? Hmm. So do you want to tell us that story of how you became you're lots of things, but in, in that mix is a French historian. So Sure. Yes. Uh, I had a, a slightly circuitous path. Uh, my undergraduate degree is in finance, um, which what? I uh, neither liked nor was good at. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 yeah, exactly. Um, I thought I had to do something practical. I was an, an undergrad for six years, kind of roaming through majors and always taking a lot of history and uh, English classes. But it just did not occur to me that um, that could be, you know, some sort of career. So I got a degree in finance and uh, I worked in marketing for about a year and I was profoundly miserable. So my mother said, asked me what I would do in a perfect world. And I said, study history. And I didn't really know what that meant. And honestly, neither did my parents who were incredibly supportive. Um, and so I went back to Northern Illinois University, which is where I had gotten my undergraduate degree and took graduate classes as a student at large. And I was already a feminist. I was, my mother was a sort of Betty Friedan era feminist and, um, mm-hmm. and uh, raised, raised us with that. And, um, and so I was interested in, in women and I was interested in leftist politics and radicalism. And, uh, and so um, I had three classes, one on Marx, taught by Margaret George, and one on modern Europe, taught by Harvey Smith, and one on absolutism in France, taught by Bill Bike. And I had had no connection to France before this, but I just was kind of swept up in uh, France's radical tradition. Uh, and then I, when I encountered the commune, I just thought, I'm like, wait a minute, were there women in this? And um, <laughs> it was really, and then and then I thought, well, I think I can do this history thing. And I applied for a, a, to be in the MA program there. And they said I needed to pick a, a country. And um, I knew no French. And they said that there was a translation course being offered in the summer. And if I took that, it would fulfill the requirement. And so I, I called on the telephone and there was one space left in it. And so I'm a French historian. That's awesome. And I'm re- very, very happy about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so are we all. That's a great story. And I, I mean, you mentioned that somewhere along the line, you had that question about whether or not um, there were women involved in the commune. And if we know that that is absolutely the case, it's partly thanks to you. Thank you. um, Including that 2004 book, Surmounting the Barricades, published with Indiana University Press. Yes. And um, you've got another book that I'll, I guess I could ask you about later, but I'll just mention it now, Feminism's Empire, that has at least one commune art in there, right? It has, it has two. It has uh, Louise Michel and Paul Menck. That's right. And that one's coming out in June, well, next month. Exactly. Is that right? And a shout out to yes. 
Mike Van, my colleague, uh, who is also a colleague on the NBN, who will be interviewing you for New Books in History um, for that one, because I can't take up all of the Carolyn Eichner time on the network. <laughs> We're going to share you. Okay, so this book, Kristen Ross invited you. You've written about the commune before. You had nothing else uh, pressing going on during the <laughs> pandemic. Writing a brief history, I guess I want to ask you, first and foremost, like as someone who's worked on the commune for years and comes back to it in various ways, like how challenging it was to get this, to get it down to, I don't know, um, this very manageable, but probably not from your perspective writing it just over a hundred pages, like, what's it like to write a brief history? <laughs> Challenging. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. I mean, it really, it, I mean, it was, it was possible because I've been thinking about the commune for so long. Mm. It's something that, you know, I mean, I, and, and talking about it and teaching it. And then I just really, um, to distill it down, I mean, it was, it's difficult because I, I love details and I have mm-hmm. to refrain from, you know, kind of, <laughs> getting lost in details. And, um, and so, you know, I, I just, my uh, partner is um, incredibly helpful, Kenan Ferguson, political theorist, I'll shout out there. And so together we worked on, because he has you know, lived with a commune for a couple of decades now. And so, um, so I, you know, I used him as a real sounding board and, and you know, made it an outline and just kept kind of tightening it and then thought about it kind of telling a, a story in a way, but with obviously a, a narrative, you know, with analysis and uh, interpretation and, and uh, you know, all of that good scholarly stuff. And so it was actually kind of, it was fun. The writing was fun some days, other days less so. Sure. But just really, you know, just kind of trying to, to follow a thread. Um, I, I decided to, you know, pick certain figures. The way I thought about writing it and the narrative and to make it, you know, more accessible um, and to make people be, to be able to connect with the, the different actors in the commune, I, I you know, just thought about okay, I'll I'll think you know focus on these three three women and three men and kind of weave them in and out. And they're not it's not like I just focus on these six people, but it was a way of kind of focusing the narrative. Okay, before we go any further, I mean, as you know, Carolyn, I'm not I'm no scholar of the commune per se, but I'm a huge fan of that history. Um, <laughs> I like to teach classes on it. I like to talk about it, read about it all the time. People think I work on the Paris commune sometimes. I'm like, no, no, mm-hmm. I work on the post 1945 <laughs> period. So you and I talking, we can probably fall into the trap of taking stuff for granted. So let's before we Go any further, just give people who might not be as familiar with this history the like the brief version of the brief history of the commune. <laughs> what was the Paris commune? Go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. it's like the elevator pitch, right? All right. The Paris commune was a 72 day long revolutionary civil war, right? Immediately following the Franco-Prussian War in 1871. The Franco-Prussian War, which was not going well for France anyway, and France surrendered to Prussia partially because it was more concerned about the activists working class population in Paris than it was about the Prussians. Mm. And then uh, immediately um, the, the new government immediately took a number of measures that um, 
uh, let's say undermined the, the, the life and well-being of the working classes and you know, financial measures that were repressive. And that uh, led to in, you know, increased uh, unrest in Paris mm-hmm. and ultimately to um, March 18th, to March 18th mm-hmm. when there were cannons left in Montmartre after the Franco-Prussian War and sitting up on the butte overlooking the city and uh French powers that be uh, were very uncomfortable with this since Montmartre was a completely completely working class area. And they sent mm-hmm. troops up there in the pre-dawn hours. The horses were delayed and the troops stood there and waited. And then as the sun rose, women came out of their houses to get bread and milk for their families and saw the soldiers and said, what are you doing? And uh, stepped between them and the cannons and the soldiers turned around and arrested their uh, leaders and thus began this revolutionary civil war, mm-hmm. which is often termed the first, so I, I call it a sort of socialistic revolution. It's not quite socialist, mm-hmm. I don't think. But, uh, and it, uh, it was a 72-day experiment in radical democracy while under siege by the French National Army and um, the, the project of social and political and economic transformation was going on at the same time as uh, defending in a, defending the city in a civil war. Mm-hmm. How's that? That's great. Because it's a hard thing to, you know, I mean, I remember what somebody who wasn't as familiar with the communist history when I decided I wanted to teach a class on it, you know, I was like, I'm going to teach a class on this 72 day <laughs> episode. And it, <laughs> it was such a fun challenge to do that um, and to have that kind of time. But it's still like there's so many things that I ended up having to leave out. So, right. Um, yeah. So it's just a fascinating history. And this book comes at it and presents it to well, a real wide range in terms of a potential audience. So I guess that's another question I wanted to ask you, Carolyn. Like when you were writing this book and thinking about who it was for, who were your imagined readers? Students uh, and interested in engaged general population of you know activists or people who are interested in France, people who are interested in revolutions, you know, people who are interested in civil war, people who are interested in radical social change, and also um, fellow scholars and uh, historians of of France and the Paris Commune because it's um, it's a it's a brief history, but it's also uh, my scholarly intervention, re- more recent scholarly intervention in the. Um, historiography of the commune. Yeah. And I think what, what you've produced, I mean, the book is so readable that I can completely imagine all of those different potential readers getting so much out of it. Thank you. Um, Is that, was that part of the fun of writing it that you got to, did you, did you feel like you were writing in a different register than you, I mean, I've read your other work. It's all, you know, compelling to read, but did you feel like a different type of writer putting this book together? Yeah. Yes, yeah, and it's something that I've done uh, a couple of times before, and I really enjoy it. I have uh, a piece on um, Louise Michel and the uh, Kanak in New Caledonia in the um, British political literary uh, journal Salvage. It's a uh, mm, China yeah. Mayville's, um, yeah, and uh, and then I um, I've done a couple of other things for different you know kind of sites that were. Uh, more intended for a general audience, and I enjoy this kind of writing, and so it was fun. It's you know more, you know a little more. I get to try to b- bring the excitement more to the forefront, and with the topic like the commune, it's uh, 
there's a lot of excitement. And, and so I tried really hard to, to make it uh, something that you could, people could feel and visualize when they were reading it. Yeah. I mean, that, that visual, that visuality, I guess, is really, is really there throughout. And there's so many questions I have about how you put the book together and the kinds of decisions, some of them really hard, I imagine, that you had to make. But the first one, I guess I want to ask, has to do with the, the parts of the book, you know, the, these three mm-hmm. chapters, these really provocative, kind of beautiful <laughs> titles um, for these mm-hmm. three parts, Illumination, Fluorescence, and Explosion. Can you say a little bit about how you came to those three and how they kind of structure the book? Sure. Um, I, it's it's basically before, during, and then the, like, end and and into mm-hmm. after but um i thought about I, I thought about it as you know something that lit up and um burned brightly and beautifully and then uh, exploded and went out but didn't really go out so so that was it and i and i you know was trying to think about a way i mean once i i settled on this kind of uh idea of of fire and burning i thought that was that made sense because of the fires but also because of the passion connected to it and the Mm -hmm. the kind of passion that was expressed by the communards and that and the kind of passion that so many people have about the commune in you know the ensuing 150 years and so i thought the you know the illumination is is you know here we're gonna there's the light that's beginning to burn as we move towards this event and then the fluorescence of the event itself and then the, the explosion and, uh, and its aftermath. Yeah, no, I especially love the way that, I mean, I, I, it carried me through the whole book, but you know, when I was beginning the book, this, that each sub section of that first part illumination has sparks in front of it. Like it's, <laughs> I mean, it's not just cute, right? It's sort of exciting to read it and you kind of get the sense of a building. And then, yeah, I do associate fire for obvious reasons with the commune, but then all of those other types of resonances of light and burning and the explosive quality. Like it's it's just interesting too, because surveys of the commune, you know, they tend to follow, like this is following it chronologically, but they tend to follow a, a pattern in their tables of contents in their organization that that you're tracking here, like those events in the order that they happened in. I'm thinking of those tables of contents that are like the siege, then, you know, March 18th, then, um, you know, the early days or whatever, like women, and then, you know, the the bloody week at the end, and it sort of has this, and maybe legacies if we're lucky. So, um, so yeah, I just was curious to, to ask you about how, the way you set that up maybe mm-hmm. is uh, in response or like what impact do you think it has on that arc of the story that, that we tell? Well, thank you for that. Um, well, thinking about the, in the first chapter using sparks, I mean, I literally was thinking about like, what were the different you know elements that, mm-hmm. that went into it? And so each is a spark, right? So it's, it's the, the city, you know, politics, the public yeah. meetings at the, the end of the empire, you know, the, the international, um, and then the, the empire extinguished, right? So mm-hmm. you've got these sparks and then you have the sort of counter thing extinguished. And so I, I thought that, you know, this would, I, I hoped at least that this would present each piece fitting into, you know, the, the puzzle, if you will, of, of, mm-hmm. of what 
created and led to the commune, but you know, while keeping this theme of you know of fire and um, kind of glowing and illumination, um, and you know, instead of saying just you know contributing factors, right? It was just it seemed like a, a more interesting way of of setting it up. You mentioned Carolyn that the book is kind of anchored and returns again and again to these central figures of the commune, and that you chose to divide that evenly between women and men who are involved. And yeah, I guess I just want to ask you about that choice that knowing you seems uh, like, of course, Carolyn did that. But yeah, just what it means for you to write a history, even in a brief history that is not, that is meant to cover the commune, what it means to you to, to like how gender figures in this book given that feminism and the role of women and gender is such a central part of the other work that you do, like how you kind of work that out. Well, thanks for that question. Um, yeah, I think for me, um, one of the really important things was to, to fundamentally ind- integrate women and gender into the history of the commune. And so, and so to not have a, you know, uh, you know, the Paris commune, a brief history um, that includes women and gender, you know, like it's not part of the title, right? It's just, it's just part of the history because it's part of the history, you know, it's not, it's, it's, and so, and, and so, you know, in writing it, it, I I wanted to include the, in the narrative, the characters, you know, the, the actors, because it's, it's, when readers and students really like it, but readers like that to be able to, you know, get a sense of who these people were who were involved and to get uh, to have them, you know, represent different strands of feminism or different strands of socialism um, or both. But to really, really, it's just gender. Women are completely integrated into the, the book because they were completely integrated into the event well as mm-hmm. they're completely integrated into history mm-hmm. so or should be um it was a very central thing for me well and it's really there as a reader you know it's not you know as i said before it's like it's not like the women and gender chapter or whatever it's just right kind of there all the way through and of course the roles that women and men played in the commune were different in some ways and there were constraints and like all of these things and exclusions that persisted throughout the commune and there are critiques to be made, but they are, they're integrated into that history in this way. Um, So that's kind of me connecting this brief history to both of the other books, one, which is almost out. (laughs) But the other question I had for you has to do with how this brief history of the Paris commune situates the commune in relationship uh, to empire, which I know plays a real central role in in the book that's that's about to come out. So yeah, I, I'm kind of mm-hmm. curious about how writing this book after finishing the other one or before. You've been writing two books at the same time. I can't keep up. What's going on? Yeah, yeah. I've actually been writing three books at the same time. Oh, good that's lord. A, that's okay. Actually, yeah, which is which I I don't I don't advise that approach. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because of the you know so the brevity of this book, um, there is the, the it's really you know the end that um, engages questions of empire and you know, briefly <laughs> the brevity of the book, but uh, I, it does you know primarily be, because of the forty five hundred communards that were exiled to the prison colony in New Caledonia mm-hmm. in the South Pacific and um, and that that actually segues into my the feminism's empire book which. Um, 
while focusing one of the five feminists in that book is uh, Louise Michel, because I look at the first five feminists of the later half of the 19th century to engage with empire. And it's Louise Michel, and she's sent to New Caledonia, and um, it changes her politics and her understanding of oppression and equity and uh and makes and she becomes anti-imperialist and then uh, so i talk a bit about you know, that and and the other communards sent to new caledonia and then also the the fact that uh at the same time as the commune is happening that there's a anti-imperial uh, uprising in algeria and those it, once that's crushed then those um, the Kabyle leaders of that are, are sent to New Caledonia. But also at the same time as that, there is a commune formed in, in, uh, in Algeria and Algiers. And those, they're mostly veterans of 1848 who'd been uh, exiled there. And they have no interest in anti-imperialism or imperialism, but they, they there were, there were, a number, quite a number of communes that rose up around, mostly around France. And at the beginning of the of the commune, the one in Marseille lasted 10 days. And I think that was the longest one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this one in Algiers was just very, very brief. So, so there's that kind of connection, mm-hmm. but that's, um, that's really, you know, about it because of, again, the, the, the parameters of the book. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, it's one of those things where reading the book, knowing your other work, and like I could just sort of tell that there was a sensitivity to those to those questions and concerns, and I knew I knew it was coming. Um, and so, uh, I guess another question I have has to do with, you know, you mentioned a couple of times how you wanted to make a particular kind of intervention. And I know just from speaking with. And Chabal and some other uh, historians who've written some of these briefer histories that it's a real challenge to, you know, do the coverage of like the content events to provide that overview for people, but then to also figure out a way to make the book your own in terms of an intervention historically, historiographically, in terms of analysis, you know, your political take, whatever it is that you want to get in there. And so I wonder you could tell us a little bit about how you balanced that, how you, how you worked on that part of the, the project. And then, yeah, what, what you hope that people will take away from this brief history as, you know, some of those interventions that, that you've wanted to make with this, with this book. Because the, the commune is still such a, a hotly contested mm. event and the historiography is, still so contentious in many ways I, I i this was what i was you know hoping to do to to you know intervene and um present my perspective um and my scholarly perspective and, and to you know talk about the commune as looking both backwards and forward as look as being influenced by the french revolution but also being a, an experiment in radical democracy, uh, and this is why in the I, I talk about the in, in the central chapter I talk about the politics, the socioeconomic, um, the politics, economics, and social cultural the aspects of the commune, and the, the kind of originality that was going on, the kind of experimentation mm-hmm. in in politics and culture and economics, 
there are some scholars who term the commune a failure, and I vociferously argue against this. I mean, mm-hmm. the commune was crushed, but I see it as this model for quite a broad range and type and number of progressive movements in the next 151 years so far. Um, and that it really, it, it, it kind of opened up a lot of routes to progressive and or, and or radical change. And so I think that because I had been reading a number of things that were terming the commune a failure, I was wanted to make clear that I, argued against them, arguing against that and, and uh, show that with the, with the scholarship, you know, within the limits of the pages that I could, but also show the, the connections to the French Revolution, the consciousness of the, the, the revolutionary past and the consciousness of looking to the future. Mm-hmm. Well, this is as good a time as any to come back to that question I had earlier about like writing this book when you were writing it. You know, I mean, it's got lots of parts, this question of mine, because it's like writing this book, <laughs> you were writing it and thinking about it around the 150th anniversary, which is its own thing. But then to have that, and again, I keep coming back to this class I taught in the spring of 2021, to have that happening, that kind of commemorative moment where just there was it was super exciting last year, right? Like it always is when people revisit and come back to things. But last year, there's just this explosion of stuff, you know, meetings, conversations, publications, happenings. I mean, all within the constraints of the pandemic, but things happening on Zoom or whatever, like all the stuff. And then also the world like was also, I mean, it's in the world, but like the rest of the world was also <laughs> happening. And so I, I don't know if there's an easy way for you to tell us about that, but like, what was that like? <laughs> um, well, I had been looking forward to this anniversary, the 150th mm-hmm. anniversary, and had hoped to spend a fair amount of time in Paris or in France to, in, for speaking at conferences and just being there. And um, so that obviously didn't happen uh, during during the, mm-hmm. the time. But there were many you know, Zoom t- uh, talks and conferences <laughs> and things that I participated in, which was great. And and in some ways, you know, probably then were seen by more people, and and, and more people were able to participate mm. than you know would have would have otherwise. But so first of all, there was this sort of you know kind of frustration and, and sense of loss just on my part, that, and and then obviously on the part of anyone else experiencing this, which is you know, so many people. The, mm-hmm. um, this this uh, the way that this couldn't be commemorated um, in the way that, that many people had, had hoped. And, and then there's, there's the pandemic and there's black lives matter and there's, you know, all Mm -hmm. of this stuff going on. And, and I just, in a way I, by, you know, immersing myself in writing about this. And as I said, you know, I really see the commune as this kind of, you know, roadmap to, you know, many future ends. And I, I felt like, well, this was it's almost a, in a way an extra level of, of inspiration as in trying to create this accessible, readable, digestible version of the commune that would then, you know, be out there in the world. I mean, I had, you know, hoped that it would come out 
during 2021. That was the original intent and they, and Rutgers thought it could, but you know, it just couldn't. It, it feels like a, a sort of activism in bringing this history and its many aftermaths uh, to a wider audience and, and to those who already know it in a, in a slightly different way. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, honestly, it was like immersing myself in this was a, was a way of really feeling more engaged, you know, it was like, I just dove in and then, you know, there, there wasn't necessarily all of the, the news of the, you know, dying people and people, you know, rejecting, uh, vaccinations and uh masks and all mm-hmm. this i could just kind of turn that off and and you know for many hours a day <laughs> and write this and uh it was help it was very helpful for me to have this project i mean i had the you know, the feminism's empire and you know but this that this other book that you're writing <laughs> yeah right yeah. right right and then there's a third one um right but it but it really was you know having the fellowship, not teaching, you know, just being in my house, just, and having, and having the resources to do this too, because, you know, there was a pandemic. I couldn't go to the library, but the amazing, wonderful uh, interlibrary loan people at my university. Uh, and then the fact that so much has been digitized, obviously when I wrote Surmounting sure. Barricades, <laughs> nothing was digitized. And then I also have uh, extensive files of photocopies from when I did my dissertation research and then, and when I was <laughs> writing Surmounting the Barricades, it was like all of these factors, I think if any one of these factors wasn't there, I, I couldn't have done it during the pandemic, right. but it gave it an extra level of kind of meaning and urgency. Yeah, I'm sure it did. And I, I guess, I mean, with specificity when it comes to 2021, but I'm going to ask you kind of an absurd question, Carolyn, which I ask myself too, especially because I, you know, I'm a C2021 person. Like, what is it about the commune that, you know, pulls me back Hmm. all the time? Why do I love it so much? Or why do I love thinking about it so much? Like, what is it? (laughs) Because, you know, I mean, the people I meet and have exchanges with about the commune, yeah, there's French historians. There's people who are interested in the 19th century in other countries, you know, who are interested perhaps in um, what uh, people had to say about the commune in, you know, the United States or other parts of the world, connections people make to the context where I live in Canada. Like, there's that. Um, there's literature people, you know, but then there's the whole world of universe of various people on the left and what the commune means to them and lots of different like groups of people. And it's just like got this, it just comes back again and again. And there's a this mythology around it, this short-lived period. What do you think, like if you ever think about this, I mean, maybe it just mm-hmm. kind of comes naturally to, to you to, to be into it. <laughs> but when you observe <laughs> that, the, the ways that people, not just academics, you know, artists, writers of other kinds, uh, musicians, um, political activists, like the way that they come back to the commune and on the scale that they do and with the intensity, like what do you think it is about it that that motivates people and inspires them so much? I think it's the optimism despite the brutal ending, the fact that it it, it create, I mean, it's almost like 
what you're describing feeds on itself and replicates itself, right? <laughs> and if people see this, and and it, I mean, I, I did a um, a Zoom discussion with a really good old friend of mine. It, um, spon- it was sponsored by the American Friends Service Committee, who she's her name is Mary Zirkle, and she's worked for them for a long time. And we did a, a Zoom discussion of this book, you know, for a broader audience, um, mostly activists. And and afterwards, when we were talking, she said, she said, said and we've been friends since college, and she said, you know, honestly, before I read this book, I couldn't quite understand how you could stay focused on something for so long, <laughs> what it was that, that would keep you so engaged with this. And then she said, and then she, after the reading the book and then our conversation, she's like, now I completely get it. And I think it's that, you know, this, you know, what I was saying before about it kind of creating this, you know, roadmap to so many places and that it, it engages the imaginations and the intellect and the hope of people, you know, as you said, as the artists, um, you know, musicians, theater, there's so, you know, so many kinds of, uh, events that went on last year, you know, virtually, but that you can mm-hmm. just, I'm going back to Brecht writing about the commune. And, and I think that, um, on the other, uh, the flip side of that is that this is why there is still such anti-commune fervor, uh, amongst mm-hmm. the French sort of center and right too, because it's, it's threatening in the same, I mean, the same, the same reason that Thiers and the, the French army were hell bent on, crushing the commune, not just, you know, putting it down, but on this brutal, like, decimation of the participants and of the event itself, to, to make an example, to say this can never happen again, because the eyes of the world were on them, the eyes, the, you know, capitalist elite um, eyes of the world were on them, and it was, the ball was in, in the French National Army's court to make sure that the people understood that if they tried this again, there would be a brutal and bloody end. But that the fact that that did not extinguish the hope and optimism and examples that it created and obviously still creates, it, it makes it, you know, just it continues to be this like, you know, beacon of, of uh, potential, um, and it depends on which side you're standing on, whether that's a, a wonderful potential or a horrible and terrifying potential. Mm-hmm. You know, inversions of class and gender, you know. Um, just to kind of go swing in maybe not the opposite direction, but a different direction. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it sort of makes me think like I've had a lot more conversations about the commune with non-French historians mm-hmm. than I have with French historians when I really think about it. I mean, there's you, <laughs> and there's other people, you know, who work on the commune, but, and I certainly had more conversations with French historians about the commune last year around the 150th anniversary. But like, that's the, that's the other thing about it. It's like, I'm a French historian. So it seems to make sense that mm-hmm. I'd be interested in this history, but it's not really what, <laughs> it's not really what brought me to it. What sticks me like, keeps me coming back to it it's not so much the fact that I mean of course that's part of it but and so I'm kind of curious about that too like as someone who's been working on this for a while whether you've noticed a shift or whether you have observations about like the place the commune has in our field 
Oh, the the main thing is that it's just you know the interest really you know took off around the anniversary, which you know which makes sense. And there was a yeah, there was a, a bit of a, a a rise and you know more of a, a little more than a blip, you know, for the hundred and fortieth anniversary. Um, I participated in a conference in Narbonne that um, generated a pretty uh, wonderful collection uh, edited by Laure Goudineau mm-hmm. and Marc César. Um, and, uh, and so there was, you know, the sort of the, the, the anniversary effect basically. And, um, you know, I think that, yeah. and, and, I mean, and I think it's sort of reflected in the fact that there really haven't been, uh, there hasn't been a brief history written in so long since, you know, right around the time of the hundredth anniversary. And I mean, there certainly has been a, a you know, mm-hmm. scholarship since then, but, uh, this, this anniversary really, I think the number itself, 150, and then just the state of the world and all of these goings on, I think, sure. drew more more and more attention to it. No, I think that's right. I know that the first that surrounding the barricades has been recently, what is time? I mean, maybe it was two years ago already, yeah. translated into French. When did the French translation? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was, it was 2020. It was just in time. For the pandemic. Okay, so, and I'm like, yeah, just, just last yeah, week. Yeah, no, just in time for it to be <laughs> literally stuck in the warehouse for months at Edition de, de la Sorbonne. Oh, no. Yeah, oh yeah, it was, people couldn't get it and it was, yeah, the timing was terrible. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry about that, but Thanks. I'm glad that it's <laughs> Me out. Me too. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I guess I wonder, like with that book, this book, um, we won't talk about the other ones yet, <laughs> but... Um, you know, this idea of like, well, especially Anglo audience, but a more kind of outside of France audience versus a French audience, like with that other book and um, with Surmounting the Barricades and with with this one, like, I guess I wonder what you think about your audience in terms of non-French types, (laughs) French types, like, yeah, do you have different things to say, or do you think the reception of something like this would be different in the French context? Like, I don't, I don't know if there's a plan for this one to to come out in French, but I just wonder about that because I do, def, I do also just, and this is all anecdotal, like have different kinds of conversations sometimes with people who are working in a like a North American or Anglophone context uh, on the commune or thinking about it. And, you know, the status that it has, the place that it has, and the different kinds of silences about it in the French context. So I just wonder how you think that. Yeah, I mean, it, as of now, at least there are no you know, plans for this to be translated. I would absolutely love for it to be translated. But mm. there was, um, you know, last, the last uh, year or so, there was quite the outpouring of publications sure, in yeah. France. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't know what the what that, that says about the, um, the audience waiting for another brief history, especially one by an American. I, I, I don't know, but I, I mean, I would, I would love to have this come out, but having surmounting the barricades come out in French and I, um, I want to shout out to my wonderful translator, Bastien Crépin, Mm -hmm. um, you know, having that come out in, in France was extremely important to me to have because of the, Know, centrality of women and issues of gender in the commune and the fact that that had been, you know, not exactly a, a central factor in much of the French language historiography before that. So that was uh, very exciting for me to have that come out in, in French. And no, no, and I, I think I would love to, 
to have this come out in French and to then see what um, what kind of response it would have. Just I wonder sometimes, you know, that we we and it's not even like we all agree or do things the same way, but that there's a different approach to certain, especially contentious political and historical issues um, in France that people writing from the outside are able to or might emphasize or might explore, poke at things that uh, might be more sensitive in a French context or there might be a bit more resistance to or less, yeah, more silence about. And so I just wondered about that because as you say, there was so much activity. Uh, I mean, I was just following like online (laughs) um, in France (laughs) around this anniversary last year. And I don't know. I haven't tracked all the anniversaries, but I mean, there have always been dedicated groups of people who, you know, are interested in having people understand and know about the commune's history, but it just felt like a much more generalized kind of commemoration uh, or broader commemoration. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the, what you said about the you know particular sensitivities, um, I was at a, I presented at a conference in uh, Lausanne in Switzerland in the fall. And part of what I was talking about is Louise Michel in New Caledonia and the way in which she was the only communard to consistently support the Kanak and their uprising against mm-hmm. the French in their mm-hmm. in 1878, you know, including that the sort of the fact that quite a number of communards actually fought on the side of the French against the Canucks, someone choosing you know, whiteness mm-hmm. and civilization over some kind of solidarity. There was a, there was a bit of tension about this, about this me criticizing the communards, and um, mm-hmm. that uh, that was very it was very clear that this was, you know, kind of um, yeah. There was a bit of tension about that, but I think you know there's a a lot of attachment to the commune as there is you know, and it's. It, it's a similar thing in, in my book, Feminism's Empire. I talk about the feminist use of the figure of the Jew in uh, in, in 19th century France and the, the empire for all sorts of things to advance political positions. And you know, this this figure of the Jew is something that was kind of easily accessible and a clear point of, of reference. And and the way that, uh, for example, um, Olympe Audouard, the monarchist uh, feminist with Republican sympathies, who was a raging anti-Semite, and mm-hmm. um, and Hubertine Auclair, who used anti-Semitism in instrumentalized ways to try to advance the cause of women's suffrage, and uh, well, I have had um, a fair amount of resistance to that because of the criticizing of these feminists, whereas I'm not actually criticizing them, I'm talking about what they said and what they did in the same way that mm-hmm. with the communards, I'm talking about what they said and what they did. And, you know, I mean, I mean, it's not a secret that I'm super sympathetic to the commune and, or to <laughs> feminists. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's the reveal. What? <laughs> um, yeah, I know exactly. <laughs> in a surprise move. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh my goodness. Um, but, you know, if you're doing the work and you're trying to talk about what happened and why, you have to talk about the the unpleasant and nasty parts, but um, it depends. Yeah. There are, are you know communities of interest who are feel more protective of these you know historical actors and and I mean honestly when I was doing the work on the 
you know, feminism's empire. And when I, I didn't plan on looking at the, the way that they talked about Jews or looked at Jews at all. And I just mm. kept coming across it. And, you know, quite honestly, it was disturbing and disappointing, but it didn't mm. mean, you know, that I, I mean, I had to write about it. It really, it connects with empire. Maybe it's an academic thing. Like I can be a fan and a critic at the same time. I have no problem with that. <laughs> just yes, roll exactly. them together, you know, like, well, you do yep. X well. <laughs> yep. um, I would have liked to hear more about or less about uh, why. Um, you know, Carolyn, just coming back to this thing about, you know, the mythology and various people's, including my own, um, you know, obsessions with the, with the commune. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think about, well, I think it was Kristen Ross who said, you know, at the beginning of um, communal luxury, like somewhere that, you know, it's not about lessons. Like it's not about history mm-hmm. giving us lessons. It's about history offering us like a, what did she say, archive toolbox. Like there's stuff there that we can go look at and it, and it, and we can think about our current moment in relationship to those questions that are raised, uh, to that politics, all those kinds of things. And I guess, yeah, I, I asked you about writing this while all this stuff was going down. But what do you think about the commune? Like how do you make sense of that? its relevance in the contemporary moment. I mean, especially as somebody who has this real close relationship with so many of these figures and what they wrote and what they said and what they did. I mean, I think I know a little bit about these people, but it's nothing compared to to, to your connection to them. So yeah, I just, I just wonder how much the politics of this moment, the words and ideas and acts of these people who you've written about over you know, your career really, how much you see them as a, like a repository for contemporary politics or um, issues around inequality and uh, social justice and some of those kinds of things. Like how you, is the commune always just like, like are you, <laughs> you know, when you pick up the paper or whatever, however one absorbs the news these days, is it just like, <laughs> is the commune like the ding, ding, ding going off all the time where the commune's always <laughs> popping into your head? What's, what's it like to be Carolyn Eichner in the contemporary moment absorbing the news? <laughs> that's, that's, that's fabulous. Um, <laughs> happily, no, the commune isn't completely present all the time. That would be, that would be, that would Not be good that's for you scary. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Or anyone else, my sister. Oh my God. Um, but, um, no, but I, I, first of all, I, I detest violence. Um, and I, you know, I, I see the, the violent outcome is just a horror. Mm-hmm. And I know that often, you know, violence is, is you know, unavoidable, but uh, I find it, you know, abhorrent and terrifying. Um, but I see so much of what went on in the commune. And this, I really try to talk about, you know, in the book, I talk, uh, the, mm-hmm. this idea of this experiment in radical democracy, you know, this idea that a, a worker should be able to work all day long and then come home and write a book. So not just read a book, but write a book. So the idea of, mm. you know, egalitarian education and opportunity control over one's conditions of work and being mm. able to make a living wage and, you know, these kind of things that the commune tried to do, um, conceptualizing, uh, um, you know, the state as something that is directly responsive to the population and has responsibility to the population. These kind of ideas that, that I, I see as, you know, this, this kind of, 
you know, as you said, this kind of toolbox or, you know, use this idea of this roadmap. And when I, it's really funny because when I think of the, the roadmap, I picture kind of a central point within all these roads going off and then it just kind of fades away because the roads could go anywhere. And this is my, it's kind of my, my, that's funny. I don't know if I've exactly articulated it like that before, but that's how I think about it when I talk about this roadmap with so many potential and so, so much potential. Thanks. Thanks. And, you know, it's like, I mean, you see things like, you know, in Occupy Oakland, some young woman was interviewed and asked her name. She said it was Louise Michelle. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, yeah. and there was the, the rescue ship in the Mediterranean rescuing refugees paid for by Banksy. And it was, it's named Louise Michelle. And, um, <laughs> I mean, that Louise Michelle might be a whole other conversation, but that's also something I tried to do is to, I don't directly say this, but I really hope no one ever calls her the Red Virgin again. Um, oh my goodness, yeah. This idea of, yeah, yeah. I mean, she is often, you know, thought of and remembered it as a, a kind of a caricature and this, this idea of this, you know, woman who's married to the revolution and, um, uh, yeah, it's and it, as opposed to this, yeah, it's super creepy. And it also, it's just, <laughs> it erases, I mean, you know, when I wrote Surmounting the Barricades, I very specifically did not write about Louise Michelle because when I was writing my dissertation, actually, anytime I said anything about women in the Paris Commune, people, whoever, you know, I was speaking with said, Louise Michelle? It's like, no. Right. I mean, it was right. as though she was the only, the only woman. It was, you know, and, and so, I mean, she's, you know, in Surmounting the Barricades a little bit, but just a little. So there is some irony that then she is quite, you know, central to feminism's empire, but she is because she was a linguist, a novelist, an anthropologist, a theorist, a poet, uh, an orator. She was extraordinary and so much of what she accomplished and what she did has been kind of erased or marginalized and in, in this kind of, you know, and some of this, a lot of this comes from the way that the communist party in the 20th century really, um, you know, kind of took her, appropriated her and had her as this image of revolutionary mm-hmm. sacrifice and suffering. And um, yeah, she sacrificed and she suffered, but she did an awful lot more than that. And mm-hmm. uh, so that's all. And that's it. That's really more. I mean, she's very much in um, the brief history, but she's. Uh, yeah, she's a central figure. And she, you know, people, I, I mean, I'm just thinking of my students right now, like, they're, you know, she's an incredibly charismatic and compelling figure on paper. Like, she, I mean, it's kind of amazing. Yes. I mean, in the images also, but it's like, you know, especially as somebody who teaches the 20th and 21st centuries, like, it's amazing to me to watch how interested my students get in this figure that they don't have like a historical film to, to I mean, I right. that film, frankly, but um, yeah. why isn't that happening? Uh, <laughs> um, that should be part Excellent of the 150th wave. That would be great. Um, I'd worry about it. We'll, we'll have to get back together if there is, you know, <laughs> Uh, if there is a film, we could just spend an hour talking about that. Carolyn, it's hmm. been so hard to focus on on this book because I sort of think of you as this, like, you're a repository of the commune. And so, and that there are these connections nice. between at least these three publications. But I'm super grateful for all those three projects and, the you know, including the one that's coming out. But you said there's another book? Yeah, there's another book. Um, What's that? That I... 
It's on uh, personal names. Um, and I, I actually oh, started right. it. Um, yeah. 20 years ago in an NEH summer seminar at Stanford with Marilyn Boxer and Karen Offen on motherhood in the nation state um, where, and, and it came out of the commune research because Paula Mank, one of the central communards in uh, surmounting the barricades, she uh, had a child that she named Lucifer Blanqui and there Napoleon had mandated that all French children be named after a, uh, Catholic saints um, or heroes from antiquity, uh, and so Lucifer Blanqui, and then and then another child sparked this revolution. Quite, that's an intense name. Yeah. Yes, and then she wrote about it, and she wrote about it, and yeah, and so I, I just became super interested in this idea of what does it mean to put your politics on a, a child, an infant, and and wrote a paper on it, and then kind of kept coming back to it. And, and uh, 2014, I um, have, have an article in Signs. Um, not science, signs. Um, right. Sometimes when I say that, people say science. No, um, <laughs> signs uh, on the feminist opposition to the patronym in 19th century France. So mm-hmm. it's a, basically the names you know, project, and that's what I'm going to be working on on my sabbatical uh, in the fall. Um, and I've been working on I, you know, on an offer, as I said, a long time. But it's about the state's interest in monitoring and controlling names and individuals and groups interest in having control over their names and, um, you know, maintaining ethnic or religious traditions and, and, uh, you know, and what, and what that means, where the, the points of kind of contention. So it's the patronym. It's, and is uh, that a, a transnational project, Carolyn, or is it, is it, it is centered in France. Yeah. It's, it's centered in France and its empire, but it has, it is going to have a, a quite a few, tra- well, it, it has a transnational comparative, elements, um, talking about the revolutionary names during the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution. And, and uh, I mean, there, there are, because I've been working on this for so long, um, people send me things about names. And also because everyone has a name and some interest in names, um, people tell me <laughs> yeah. about it. Yeah, it's really something. It's really, it, it has a particular you know, sure. resonance. And, and so I have... I have quite a bit of, uh, of material, um, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's the, the part I was most recently working on is that Napoleon mandated that Jews take permanent first and last names at the beginning of the century. And, um, then the, with the emancipation of the enslaved people in the Caribbean in 1848, they were given names, often offensive names for last names for which they had no choice. And then at the end of the 19th century, uh, Algerian Muslims were mandated to take, you know, permanent first and last names. And um, many of the names that they were given were uh, offensive and insulting and, and, and what this sort of means, what it means about assimilation and marking and the, this, the, the rules differed based on the group. So that's, um, that's, that's the sort of piece I've been um, finishing up. Wow. So, Carolyn, I am so grateful for this book. I'm really looking forward to teaching it and to talking to other people about it um, and to hearing more from you about, you know, the the kind of history that it has out in the world in various venues, um, academic and non. I'm really looking forward to Feminism's Empire and this Names Project sounds amazing. So <laughs> I just want to thank you for all, all that you have done and do, Carolyn, and for, for talking with me about the Paris Commune of Brief History. 
Thank you, Roxanne. This has been just so interesting and enjoyable for me. Your questions are fabulous. You really just bring up such fascinating things and it's so they're so thoughtful and well-informed and I, I have thoroughly enjoyed this and I appreciate it. 